reading from the book of Nehemiah. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through, so I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then headed back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the tr trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. 
The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Paul. For those who are visiting, I'm the senior pastor here. It's a joy to have you worship with us today. We are making our way through the book of Nehemiah this fall, and we're here in our second week. And I got to tell you, I'm thrilled about today's passage. Uh, What I discovered, hopefully what we'll discover together. But before we dive in, would you bow your heads with me as I share another brief word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let me begin by asking everyone this question. How are you at managing risk? This past May, a Florida man heading back from a guy's fishing trip faced the unthinkable shortly after his chartered flight took off from the Bahamas. His pilot blacked out. As reported by Johnny Dodd for People, Darren Harrison knew he had only a handful of seconds to live. The pilot of the Cessna 208 208, he was flying in, had just lost consciousness, and the plane was plummeting straight toward the blue waters of the Atlantic. As Harrison crouched behind the 64-year-old Ken Allen, desperately trying to rouse him, he could see the white caps on the swells below grow larger and larger outside the cockpit window. I could feel the G-force pushing me, says Harrison, who had never flown a plane before and stared at the array of levers and knobs on the instrument panel in front of him, trying to figure out how they worked. I heard myself think, if you don't touch these controls, you're going to die in the next 20 seconds. My wife is back at home, six months pregnant. And I tell myself, I cannot die today. This cannot happen. A split second later, the mechanically, mechanically inclined Harrison, who had peppered pilots of small planes with technical questions during a number of flights, went to work. Reaching over Alan's body, he grabbed what he thought was called the stick and gently pulled it back. I knew from talking to them, the pilots, that if I yanked too hard at the speed we were going, the wings would rip off the plane or the motor would stall, Harrison 39 told people. So I slowly, gently pulled the stick back. And moments later, I remember thinking, wow, we're actually going up. The article continues, during the plane's nose dive, the group had dropped 3,600 feet in 16 seconds. So Harrison kept pulling on the control until the plane reached an altitude of 9,000 feet. And for a brief second, he could breathe and try to assess the predicament in which he found himself. You see, little more than an hour had passed since their small single-engine plane had taken off from Marsh Harbor in the Bahamas, where Harrison had spent the past few days fishing with some pals 
And now Harrison and one of those friends were heading back to Lakeland, Florida, my old stomping grounds, where Harrison ran a flooring and design business with his dad. So what did Harrison do after assessing the situation at 9,000 feet? He took a deep breath, leaned into his faith, and hatched a plan. Specifically, listen to this. Harrison carefully removed the pilot from his seat, took control of the flight instruments and the cockpit, eventually figured out how to make radio contact with Palm Beach International Airport, learned to fly under the radio instructions of some stranger named Bobby, and somehow miraculously guided the plane to safety. Yes, it took him two passes, but Darren Harrison, after flying for some time, was able to land the plane with no hitch and not only save his life, but the life of several others. Isn't that amazing? Listen, did I mention that he did this all without wearing any shoes and without a GPS on the plane? Remarkable, right? How is that for risk management? Here's a picture of the type of plane Harrison took over and landed that day. It's bigger than you thought, isn't it? And here's a picture of Harrison breaking down and weeping after he landed the plane. Friends, as if the story couldn't get any better, listen to this. When interviewed by Savannah Guthrie of NBC's Today Show after the ordeal, do you know what this man shared? When she asked, how did you stay so calm and cool during the flight, Harrison replied, quote, God. It was the hand of God that was on the plane. That's the only thing I can attribute it to. Isn't that incredible? Harrison not only landed the plane, he was able to land his testimony to the world as well. God. It was the hand of God that was on the plane. That's the only thing I can attribute it to. I just love this statement. I love it because it's not only honorable and admits kind of how it all unfolded, but it's also an ancient statement. What do I mean by that? Well, would you believe me if I told you this statement, the hand of God is found multiple times in our passage today? You see, the God of the Bible is not some distant or disinterested entity who cares little about history. No, he's powerful and intimate, and he's involved in history. He's involved in our history. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what our text today will show us. And once we understand this truth, that the hand of God is with us and over us and guiding us, as Darren Harrison did, it changes everything. It allows us to release our fears, fix our eyes, fill our hearts, and expand our minds to see the world as God sees it. And it changes the very core of who we are and how we even do life. And this leads us to our big idea in our second week in this series on Nehemiah. And it's this. Daring trust and decisive action are indispensable elements to igniting a major work of God. 
Daring trust and decisive action are indispensable elements to igniting a major work of God. And we'll unpack this through two points this morning. Point one, dare to trust in God. And point two, dare to take decisive action for God. So let's dive into God's word. Point one, dare to trust in God. Our passage begins during the month of Nisan in the 20th century of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? There's nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? In other words, how much PTO do you need? When will you return? And so I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. A quick recap before we unpack point one. As shared last week, at this juncture of the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, in the place of God, Jerusalem, are in trouble. Both have been destroyed by foreign powers, and both sit distant from God. There's great pain and grief in this reality for Israel because the greatest good for the people of Israel was to be in the very presence of God. And yet all this suffering and destruction within their lives had come about precisely because, as we looked at last week, they'd given their hearts away to another. Israel, even though God loved them, chose to give their hearts to lust, to greed, to pride, and they allowed their hearts to be entangled and polluted by the people groups around them and by the idols of the world, so to speak. Thus, as we crack open this old little book in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, we find this man, Nehemiah, grieving and praying over all of this pain, this pain of Israel. As a slave in the Persian Empire, some 900 to 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem in chapter one of Nehemiah, we read of Nehemiah's cries to God and his longing to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls and its people. He's faithful and that he turns back to God, but he's far in that he's a slave at this point in a foreign land and he has no means to help. Could he really make a difference, we asked last week. You see, the situation was dire. And this brings us to today. Turning our attention to chapter two, here's the first message we're meant to see today. Dare to trust in God. No matter your circumstances, your pain or position in life, we see today, dare to trust in God. Now, friends, I know I used this quote uh, a few years ago, but it's just too good, and it really honors Nehemiah. Here it is. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito. 
Friends, have you ever thought to yourself, I'm, I'm too young, I'm, I'm too old, I'm too inexperienced, I'm too ill-equipped, I'm too insignificant to make a difference for God? Have you ever thought one of those things before? If you have, you might find today's passage problematic or spun positively, you might find today's passage absolutely intoxicating. Do you all remember the odd saying at the end of chapter one of Nehemiah? Here it is. It's one little, one little statement. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. A cupbearer. A cupbearer. Nehemiah was but a cupbearer in a foreign land under foreign rule, under a foreign king. Could he really make a difference? Could he really, really turn the tide of a nation and bring redemption to God's people in place? And the answer we see today in our passage is this. Absolutely. Yes. Why? Because under God's sovereign rule, it's never who we are that ultimately makes the biggest difference in life. Rather, it's who God is in our lives that makes the ultimate difference in life. Here's the deal. You can be a stay-at-home mom, a working mom, a single dad or no dad at all, and make a sizable impact in life. You can be married, single, divorced, or somewhere in between, and you can make a huge difference. It's ultimately not about you, but who God is to you that matters in life. That is the biblical perspective. And that's what we see here today from Nehemiah. After praying for four months and fasting, we read in today's passage that Nehemiah not only embraced his very low position, he invited God to leverage it. Look at this with me. When King Artaxerxes saw that Nehemiah was sad and the king asked Nehemiah about the sadness, Nehemiah replied, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city my, where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been burned by fire. Oh, the power of vulnerability. What we see here is that while Nehemiah was indeed a cupbearer, listen, in a slave, history tells us that cupbearers were actually greatly trusted by their kings. They not only earned respect by drinking the wine before the king would drink it to ensure the king was not poisoned, they would serve for year after year and sometimes become the king's very confidant. Consequently, listen, while Nehemiah was in a low position in life, paradoxically, he was close to the one person on the planet who could make a difference. And who is that? The king of Persia. And without reality coming into focus and faith welling up, daring trust welling up in Nehemiah, what do we see? We see him not only share his pain, but then he offers this plea. So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, Send me to Judah into the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. And there it is. Not only does he ask for the king's grace, he goes further and he's, he asks for the king's favor. And in so doing, he's daring to trust in God in his lowly position, but in that moment. I hope you see it. In the words of the late Charles Spurgeon, no life can surpass that of a man who quietly continues to serve God in the place where providence has placed him. 
Why is that? Because no person, no problem, no position are ultimately sovereign over our lives. Only God stands in that place. And listen, God can turn the tide of history through anyone in any place who dares to trust in him. Now, bringing this into the here and now, into our day and age. In January of 2021, Carly, my wife's youngest brother, Justin, needed his seventh open-heart surgery. Born without his pulmonary artery, Justin is the oldest living person on the planet with his condition. So in the middle of COVID and living in the Czech Republic, when Justin's heart began to fail in 2020, you can imagine all of the alarm bells that started going off. The entire ordeal was brutal. Not only was Carly's brother hospitalized for weeks on end, both before and after the surgery, but Justin had to be isolated from his family because of the pandemic. Thus, he was unable to be visited by his wife, his preschool daughter, or his newborn son for what seemed like eternity. Finally, he was able to have the surgery, was released from the hospital and able to go home. And at that point, he told us, my heart has never felt so good. And he was elated. He was so grateful. Fast forward to this year, and something started going wrong again in Justin's body. His health began to decline, and he consequently went back to the hospital only to discover that he had a very serious blood infection. Again, his life was at risk. Justin was readmitted, and he started asking, Why? Why, God? Why me? And why now? And Again, he was sitting in a hospital all alone in this lowly, hard place. That is, he was in that place until he struck up a conversation and eventually a friendship with another patient. And this new friend in the hospital with Justin started asking Justin's, Justin questions about his life, about his family, and eventually he asked Justin questions about his faith. Some of these questions, turns out, were quite hard, but would you believe me if I told you that Justin had studied for his master's in theology at Wheaton College and was prepared to answer these hard questions? In one fellowship, would you believe me if I told you that in the hospital this year, in that setting, that low, hard setting in Prague, Justin led this man, this new friend, to faith in Jesus? He did he was eventually healed. Justin was eventually healed, cleared of his blood infection, and allowed to return home to his family. Here's a picture of Justin with his young family. Friends, no matter who you are or where you are in life, dare to trust in God right now. He not only loves you, he, he wants to use you for his eternal purposes, whoever you are and wherever you are in life. And this leads us to point two, dare to take decisive action for God. Allow me to share another story. This one I came across a few years ago on the interwebs, on social media. I don't know its source, but I think it speaks to the heart and motivation of our passage today. Here it is. A father said to his daughter, you have graduated with honors. Here's a car I bought for you many years ago. We could show that picture. Thanks, Andrew. 
It's a bit older now, but before I give it to you, take it to the used car lot downtown. Tell them you want to sell it and see how much they'll offer you for it. And the daughter went to the used car lot, returned to her father and said, Dad, they offered me $1,000 because they say it looks pretty worn out. And the father, the father said, take it to the pawn shop. The daughter then went to the pawn shop, returned to her dad and said, the pawn shop offered me only $100, $100 for this old car. He said, it's ancient. The father then asked his daughter to go to a car club and show them the car. The daughter then took the car to the club, returned and told her father, some people in the club offered me $100,000 for it because it's an iconic car and sought by many collectors. Now the father said to his daughter, the right place values you the right way. If you're not valued, don't be angry. It means you're in the wrong place or dealing with the wrong people. Returning to our passage, after reading that Nehemiah was not only granted permission to travel to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, but was supplied with powerful royal letters and resources to see the work through, what do we read in Nehemiah 2, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? Did you catch it when Marty read it? Quote, I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates. I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Other translations say these officials were, quote, very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. In other words, these local officials, similar to the responses uh, in the father-daughter illustration I just shared, didn't see the value of the Israelites. They didn't see the value of the people of God. They only saw the Israelites through a carnal lens of power and greed, not through an eternal lens of love. We'll see more of this play out as we make our way through the book of Nehemiah. For now, just understand this, that for Nehemiah to undertake this major work of God, it required that he greatly value what God values, and that's his people. Last week, we, we read that these people God's people are his treasured possession. You see, God loves his people. God loves his church. God loves you. And it's pre precisely because of all of this, this affection, that Nehemiah was required to display daring trust and take decisive action to see the work begin. So what do I mean by decisive action? Well, here's a few observations for us from our text. First, decisive action is never random, but always wise. Did you notice when Nehemiah asked for the king's help, he did so with very specific things in mind, very specific letters in mind? You see, God is a God of order. And it's clear in our passage today that during Nehemiah's season of fasting and praying, God had shaped, sharpened, and ordered Nehemiah's plan. It's very clear. Friends, faith is not randomly or recklessly lived out. It's lived out wisely under God's sovereign care. That's not only see what we see before he goes to Jerusalem. It's also what we see after Nehemiah 
arrives in Jerusalem. Did you catch it? Under the cloak of night, we read, when Nehemiah and his crew first arrive in the city, they do their due diligence in the darkness before they tell anyone. They inspect the walls in the city before they tell the Israelite leaders. Healthy, holy leadership does that. It prays and it plans. Because decisive action, it's never random, but always wise. Another observation. Second, decisive action not only saves lives, but it unites lives. Following the inspection of the city, what does Nehemiah tell the Israelites? Quote, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. Note Nehemiah's language. He uses the words we and us. It's not him over them or him saving them. No, it's him with them, beside them, and God saving them and leading them. That's healthy leadership under God's leadership. To quote the late Mother Teresa, what I can do, you cannot. What you can do, I cannot. But together we can do something beautiful for God. And that, my friends, is what we see sparked here. Decisive action not only saves lights, it brings unity in life. And third, decisive action without question demands a response. I'll never forget a conversation I had going into my sophomore year of college with an old mentor, Lyle Dorset, who was a professor of mine and a brilliant author up at Wheaton College at the time. And I asked Lyle, would you disciple me? Would you meet with me? And his first question to me was this, Paul, are you committed to reading the Bible every day? If not, I don't want to waste my time with you. I thought, wow, this dude's tough, right? But the truth of the matter is I needed to be challenged. I needed to be challenged like that. You see, I wasn't committed to actually taking those next steps of growing and displaying my faith. I love the idea of growing in my faith, but it wasn't a priority. And listen, that challenge not only changed my life then, it's changed even the life of my family now, who I didn't even know at the time, I didn't even have at the time. And it's pretty cool to look back and see the impact of that challenge on my life. Another mentor of mine likes to say something like this, Quote, the gap between general agreement and genuine commitment and faith is massive. The gap between general agreement and genuine commitment and faith is massive. In other words, many of us like to give lip service to God, but our schedules, relationships, giving, and overall priorities, they don't reflect his lordship in our lives. Let's be honest. Such is why Jesus himself said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Was Jesus being mean here or actually inviting us to a better way? I'll let the Holy Spirit answer that for you. Returning to our passage, listen, when the light of faith actually does come on in our lives and we really do commit to the Lord in word and deed, it's quite the sight to behold. We read, after Nehemiah shows up and calls them to action, listen, the Israelites respond by saying, let's start building together. 
And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. I especially love how the message captures their words. Quote, we're with you. Let's get started. And they rolled up their sleeves ready for the good work. Decisive action without question demands a response. And when it comes, it is divine. So just to wrap this up, I invite you to hear our big idea, our big takeaway one more time. Daring trust and decisive action are indispensable elements to igniting a major work of God. This fall, both in your own faith journey and our corporate faith journey, two questions. Would you, would you dare to trust in God? No matter your position, would you invite God to be sovereign and active over it and in it? Would you, would you seek to be faithful and true no matter your position or problems or pain even right now? And second, when given the opportunity, would you dare to take action, decisive action for God? Would you seek wisdom, promote unity, and dare to genuinely commit to be a key cog? Listen, if you're a regular here or a member here, would you commit to being a key cog in our growth as a church family, no matter the cost? Hear again the words of the Israelites as they responded to Nehemiah. We're with you. We're with you. Let's get started. And they rolled up their sleeves, ready for the good work. I don't know about you, but I want to see God's good work this fall and this year through the life of this church. Honestly, before today's service, I prayed into Scripture over our church that we would see it come to fruition, as the Bible says, for a thousand generations. How big is your vision? It depends how big is your God. God can use any of us right now where we're at. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this awesome invitation to be used right here and right now. God, invite us into that deeper, daring trust. Help us to be still and prayerful, surrendered to you, and help us to step up for you when given the opportunity. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.